It's time now for Super Psychologist, Dr. Mara Carpell and your golden years. Good evening and welcome to Dr. Mara Carpell and your golden years this evening and every Sunday evening at 5 p.m. Central Time and at 6 p.m. Eastern Time right here on blogtalkradio.com and on drmaracarpell.com. And today is Sunday, April the 29th, and we are back after a little break. Um, And we are back in beautiful Austin, Texas, where the weather is gorgeous. And we hope you all had a great couple of weeks. I had a great trip to New York to visit my mom. And we have a really fun show in store for you this evening. All right, Mendoza of Accomplice Entertainment, producer of this program, is here with us as usual to make the show run. And this evening we have joining us once again, yoga teacher and teacher of the workshop, The Art of Happiness, Steve Kane. And he is here with us this time from Long Beach, California, where he has taken up residence. And this evening, he will talk about the secret of enlightenment. Um, that's a pretty, <laughs> a pretty big topic. So I'm really looking forward to that. I want to know how to be more enlightened. Um, and then later in the program, Kurt Weiss will be the guest artist, and he'll be joining us once again from Seattle, Washington. And this time, he is joining us to talk about his brand-new book that was recently published, Stranded in the Jungle, Jerry Nolan's Wild Ride, A Tale of Drugs, Fashion, the New York Dolls, and Punk Rock. So that'll be really interesting. Um, Along the way, I will talk about kindness. I've talked about this a little bit before. I'm going to talk a little bit more about it. And also, I'm going to talk about assertiveness. So kindness and assertiveness. <clears throat> they they do actually go hand in hand. So I'll talk about that later. And throughout this evening's program, we will have time to take your questions. So if you have any questions or comments for me or for my guests, please feel free to give a call. The toll-free number is 855-345-4720. That's 855-345-4720. Or you can email your questions to me, and I will read them on the air. And my email address is drmara, D-R-M-A-R-A, at drmarakarpel.com, D-R-M-A-R-A-K-A-R-P-E-L.com. And if you have a question for either of my guests, then please be sure to call or email while they're on the phone so that they can answer your questions. And you can hear this evening's program again by going to my website, drmaracarpel.com, and the link to the podcast, along with any website links or other important information, will be posted later tonight on my website um, link along with the podcast. But you can also hear the podcast in as soon as five minutes after the show ends. 
by going directly to Blog Talk Radio, that's B-L-O-G, talkradio.com slash your golden years. And for information from this show and updates about previous programs and about upcoming programs to read my blogs in thriveglobal.com or in Huffington Post and to find out about my upcoming book, you can go to my website, drmaricarpel.com and you can hear all of the podcasts that we have broadcast through Blog Talk Radio in the past few years by going to blog, B-L-O-G, talkradio.com slash your golden years. And for more information um, on the, you know, upcoming information on the right in real time, <laughs> um, anything breaking about um, my book, to find out about shows that are coming up each week, and to read my blogs when they're published, go to my Facebook page, Dr. Mara Carpell, Your Golden Years. And you can also follow me on Facebook at The Passionate Life by Dr. Mara Carpell. And if this is the first time that you're tuning in, I'm a licensed psychologist from New York City practicing here in Austin, Texas, and in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas. And I work with adults of all ages and have a specialty of working with seniors and caregivers, and for the past few years have also been evaluating veterans for PTSD. And part of the time, my office is in the wonderful Veterans Resource Center, Heroes Night Out, which is located in Cedar Park, Texas. And for information about this really great resource for veterans and for veterans' families, you can check out their website, heroesnightout.org. And if you want to contact me with a question or you, or if you have any information that you feel would be good for me to know about, feel free. Send me an email to Dr. Mara. That's D-R-M-A-R-A at drmarakarpel.com, D-R-M-A-R-A-K-A-R-P-E-L.com. Or you can go to my website, drmarakarpel.com, and click on Contact, or you can give me a call at 512-626. This evening's program is produced by Accomplice Entertainment, Postal Productions, and Psyched Up Productions, and sponsored by Dr. Ronald DeVere, neurologist, memory specialist, and author of the book, Everything You Want to Know But Forget to Ask. To make an appointment with Dr. DeVere at his memory clinic in Lakeway, Texas, or to purchase a copy of his book, You can call him at 512-261-7909 or send him an email to rdevere, that's R-D-E-V-E-R-E, at austin.rr.com. And his book is also available on Amazon. And this evening's program is also sponsored by Storyhouse. Storyhouse gathers your stories and turns them into multimedia collections that can be shared now and for generations to come. Have Storyhouse over to conduct a private interview in your home or invite them to your next big event or family reunion. Storyhouse, where your memories live. Find out more at yourstoryhouse.com or call 512-296-8752. Okay, we're going to take a brief break. Um, Don't go anywhere when we come back. Um, Steve Kane will be joining us from California to talk about the secret of enlightenment. 
So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Super psychologist Dr. Mara Carpell will be back after words from our sponsors. Worry about memory loss? Dr. Ronald DeVere, certified neurologist and director of Alzheimer's disease and memory disorders in Lakeway, has been helping those with dementia and memory loss for over 12 years, specializing in the diagnosis, treatment, and counseling of those with memory loss and dementia. Dr. DeVere also has a book to reduce your worry and fear by knowing the facts. Memory loss, everything you want to know but forget to ask. Available now on Amazon.com. Dr. Ronald DeVere, Alzheimer's disease and memory disorders center in Lakeway, and his book, Memory Loss, everything you want to know but forget to ask. For more information or to schedule an appointment, call 512-261-7909. Please visit us on the web at www.drmaricarpel.com. And we're back. If you're just joining us, this is Dr. Mara Carpel in your golden years, right here on blogtalkradio.com and on drmaricarpel.com. And now joining us on the phone from Long Beach, California, we have yoga teacher and teacher of the workshop, The Art of Happiness, Steve Kane, joining us once again, this time to talk about the secret of enlightenment. Hey, Mara. Hi, Steve. Are you there? You, uh, I'm, I'm here. Can there you, hear you are. I hear you. There you are. <clears throat> so how are things out there in California? <laughs> it's great. Um, I'm really <laughs> loving it out here. Great. Um a lot of enlightened people, right? <laughs> yeah, there you know, there's a good, there's a very vibrant yoga culture. Um, mm-hmm. cool. Yeah, very nice, very nice. So welcome back to the program. Um, I'm really glad that you were able to come back on. Um, I'm always glad to speak with you. And um, maybe you can give our listeners who haven't heard you on this program before. Um, a little bit of information about your background. Sure. I'm, I'm Steve Kane. I'm a 200-hour certified yoga instructor. Um, I've also uh, been teaching uh, Art of Happiness workshop uh, to help uh, people learn how to cultivate happiness in their day-to-day lives uh, using the practices and teachings of yoga. Um, I've been teaching... For about five years, um, well, I'm not currently teaching. I'm actually taking a break right now since I moved, which is is kind of nice. It's good to be a student again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I think I've been practicing for about 15 years. Um, so in addition to teaching yoga, I actually uh, run a business. We do a lot of work in medical education and web technology. And I am a father of a soon-to-be 20-year-old daughter and a soon-to-be 23-year-old son. Okay. All right. And, um, you know, you've been on the program several times, and we've spoken a lot about how yoga is not only a physical practice but also a mental practice. And I think that's what... That's what has been so enjoyable about our conversations because it's not just talking about the physical part of yoga but also the the mental part. Maybe you can talk about that a little bit. Right, I agree. I think, um, you know, in some ways the physical practice is really just a 
uh, gateway uh, to turn inwards and train the mind so it can meditate. Um, you know, basically, it's a process of working the kinks out of your body. Uh, and as you start to feel more balanced physically, uh, you can sit in meditation for a while and, and practice quieting the mind. Um, and in this process of connecting our mind, our body, and our breath is a process of shifting away from our normally neurotic state of consciousness into a state of oneness. You know, this sense of just being content moment to moment. Uh, you know, this moment is perfect just the way it is. Don't need to do anything. Don't need to change anything. Mm-hmm. So is that feeling of oneness um, what people mean when they talk about being enlightened? Yeah, yeah, sort of. I mean, it's. I'd say it's more of a a, a warm-up for an enlightenment. Uh you know, we've talked about this in the past, about the sense of trying to carry that sense of inner peace that you feel in Shavasana at the end of class into the rest of our lives. Uh, and, and again, really what we're talking about is this is trying to shift our resting state of consciousness um, away from neurotic thinking into a sense of just being. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, this neurotic thinking, that you know, the... The chattering monkey mind is what psychiatrists call the thought stream, and right. you know it can be really distracting because your mind is constantly pulling you away from this moment. And we've also talked about how this moment is where life happens. You know, life is happening, you know, in this very second, and then this second, and yet our mind is constantly pulling us out of that. So this practice of learning to be more present that, that, you know, cultivating that sense of oneness, um, you know, ultimately can just deepen, you know, often dramatically, you know, you just kind of fall into it, into a Mm -hmm. state that you could call enlightenment. Um, Okay. So, you know, you know, it's a practice. Um, You know, the, the thing that we're doing in Shavasana is, is learning to turn inwards um, and by cultivating that relaxed uh, awareness, you know, that's inward focused rather than, you know, to-do list, you know, what did I do to get to yoga class? What do I need to do next? Focused. Um, you are basically tethering your mind to, your, to your, either the sensations of your body or the sensations of your breath and you're cultivating this sense of inner peace. And that becomes like, uh, you know, a, a muscle that gets stronger. Um, and then I would say that, you know, uh, you know, what's different than that in enlightenment? Um, you know, that's kind of a more subtle state. Enlightenment is a sense that you're just completely lit up by this moment. Your mind, your body, and your spirit are completely committed and and aware of the present moment, you know, there basically is no thought stream. Instead, you're just fully present. So, mm-hmm. you know, another way of looking at this is that, you know, sometimes you hear yoga teachers talk about returning to source, uh, which is uh, a feeling of dissolving back into, you know, almost a 
primordial state of a pure awareness, a precognitive state. Uh, you might feel like uh, the boundary between you and, and everything around you disappears. Uh, you might feel like a one-celled organism kind of sensing the darkness of the world around you or as small as an atom or as large as a solar system. Um, you, but it's this, uh, kind of a, a profound sense of shedding the, you know, the false self, you know, shedding the conscious self and just being. Mhm. I mean that sounds really I mean it sounds really amazing and it sounds really blissful. <laughs> um is that the ultimate goal of yoga? Um yeah, it, it is amazing. It is blissful. Uh I mean I think you know as a, a psychiatrist <laughs> how the chatter of the mind can be a real burden. Uh so just, just mm-hmm. to release that uh can be incredibly blissful uh and you know whether or not it's the ultimate goal of yoga i'd say yes and no um you know the Patanjali's uh eightfold path which i think we talked about in the past um you know samadhi is the last leg of it so the sense of absorption is really uh in some ways a culmination of you know the other ethical physical and mental practices um, but, you know, it kind of can't be a, a goal into itself. So I'll, I'll get into that in a second. Um, but going back to Pantanjali's Yoga Sutras, um, you know, he talks about the Yamas and Niyamas, which are ethical principles, not too different than the Ten Commandments. There's Asana, mm-hmm. the physical practice that is taught in most yoga classes, Pranayama, which are breathing practices, and then those lead towards prachahara, withdrawal of the senses, uh, which is a practice of turning inwards. Uh, then dharana and dhyana, concentration and meditation, where you train your mind to stay in the present moment uh, for longer periods of time. And finally, samadhi, uh, you know, the sense of deep, profound absorption or oneness. Uh, you know, oneness not so much oneness like integration of self oneness, but more oneness you kind of explode out and become part of uh everything. You know, you're just you're just connected to the web of existence. <clears throat> mm-hmm. so, so like so, oneness with the universe, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, you mm-hmm. just feel yeah, you feel mm-hmm. you know, I mean sometimes people talk about being in the flow. Uh-huh. Um uh but I think this is more uh it's different but it's similar uh you, you know this sense of just you know moving with life as it happens and and you know again uh no real sense of self just a, a sense of more of a, a sense of an awareness of being connected to everything mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so i think this idea of absorption is a little bit more to the point than the idea of enlightened um, you know, maybe even annihilation because you're letting go of self might be more accurate. You know, it's not about being greater than, uh, in my opinion. I think it's about surrendering until you finally let go of the last vestiges of any sense of self. Um, so it's a process of turning inwards and surrendering ever more deeply until the 
the self kind of falls away effortlessly. Um, you've kind of forgotten that there is a self almost. Um, and then there's hmm. nothingness is what gets filled with everything, you know, so which I guess you could call enlightenment because um, by shedding that false state of ego, you'd suddenly just feel open to everything all around you. Um, mm-hmm. But I think if you are chasing enlightenment, then you've already tripped yourself up um, because even having an ego goal of enlightenment, you're still holding on to some sense of self-identity, which, you know, means you can't be enlightened. Right. And that's interesting. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a paradox because there's a, there are a lot of people who are looking for enlightenment, I think. Um, right. So they need to get out of their own way. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, or or they think that they're enlightened, which is once they do that, it sounds like that it's gone. <laughs> right. Yeah, I would say that's true, too. Um, and I also think that talking about it as like a state of permanent being is also confusing. I mean, uh, I think it's a state that you can fall into. Um and then it can be, you know, profound and life-changing. Uh, and then you can lose it and then, re- you know, kind of return to being a normal human being again with some mm-hmm. memory of that what that was like, you know, that might change your path in life um, or how you relate to other people. But, but uh, you know, this idea that you become enlightened and you stay enlightened permanently, I don't, I don't believe, in, at least in my humble experience, I don't believe that's true. I think you... I think you can get there and then you lose it and then you you have to practice some more and, and kind of work your way back. Mm-hmm. So it's not like a goal, like once I'm enlightened, that's it. I'm an enlightened being and now I know everything. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I don't think it's that simple. Uh, <laughs> you know, so, you and know, I, I think, I, sorry. Go on, go on. No, no, I, I, did you have a? No, I mean, I think that a lot of people feel that they're, you know, they are enlightened and they have the answers to everything. Huh, yeah. Um, and it sounds like the opposite of what you're what, what you're saying. Yeah, I, I think it's more of just a sense of openness. I mean, I mean, I'm, you know, I mean, this is from my own personal experience and from what I've read, like, you know, reading mm-hmm. uh, the kind of these ancient texts. Um, you know, maybe somebody has a different experience. Um, and I've also talked to other yogis who've, you know, gotten there in one way or another. Um, oh, I actually want to uh, thank my, my friend Mike McDaniels. Uh, I wouldn't have, I don't think I would have done this talk if not if I hadn't talked to him about mm-hmm. his experiences. Um, you know, it just made me, it made me feel like, oh, yeah, this is something we should be talking about, you know. Um, right. But, I, yeah, I do think that, you know, it's kind of counterintuitive because I think if you're, like, I want to become an enlightened being, like, you gotta, you got to work on your ego. You know, like, that's, mm-hmm. that's the thing you should mm-hmm. be working on. So counterintuitively, while on the one hand it's kind of a higher state of consciousness and people talk about it um, being a higher state of consciousness, it's really uh, a state of absence of self. So when you think of somebody like the Dalai Lama, you know, why do they seem enlightened? I don't think I don't see the Dalai Lama as being particularly ego-driven. I think the the fact that he's kind of an empty vessel for compassion 
that his self isn't getting in the way of him being a vehicle for that compassion. I mean, that's the thing that makes me feel like he's enlightened. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, and then you can, like anything else with yoga, you can get distracted by, you know, the kind of aspirational part of yoga. You know, uh, yoga magazine covers showing people doing, you know, challenging poses or, or even just this idea, in this case, you know, that yoga is leading to being superhuman in some way. You know, I, I would say that it's about being more human. You know, and through mm-hmm. the practice, you learn to accept your own limitations. And by accepting those limitations, you feel a deeper sense of empathy for others. You know, that feels to mm-hmm. me more like the path towards enlightenment. Intuitively, that feels right <laughs> to me. Um, so, you know, I mean, the other, when people talk about their themselves being enlightened, it does, it is ego, it does feel ego driven. So, I, right. you know, that, mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't so, want to suggest that I'm enlightened. <laughs> you know, right. Just, you know, I've, ex- I've experienced what I think was a sense of enlightenment. And I'm just trying to relate that experience to people. Um, and it did change my life and it was profound. Um, you know, I don't mm-hmm. want to diminish that aspect of it. But um, it was a it was an experience of surrendering, you know, of, of letting go of self. It wasn't mm-hmm. an experience of somehow feeling better than. Right, right. And I think, you know, based on what you're saying, it sounds like really anyone can become enlightened. That you know, nobody is more able to be enlightened than anybody else. No, I don't think I don't think that that's true. Yeah, I mean, I think anybody can become enlightened, and I don't. Right. I don't. I mean, maybe the thing that might give someone an inherent advantage uh, is to the extent that they can surrender or be egoless. Um, right. You know, if you're too wrapped up in your story, you know, then I think yeah, that might be a barrier. Right. Or, right. or not that unwilling to let go and desire for Unwill. control. Uh, yeah. mm-hmm. And that fear of, of of giving up your sense of self <laughs> in the moment. Um, right. I think there's actually but, a portal there. I've talked to people about this too, where there's a uh, you feel like you're going to step through and you'll be annihilated. So you have to be willing to do that. You have to be willing to mm-hmm. completely let go uh, and, you know, kind of fearlessly step into a state of unknowing. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so how can us mere mortals <laughs> cultivate, <laughs> cultivate this, this state that will lead us to these, as you said, that they're kind of moments of enlightenment yeah, that I, can um, be life-changing? Well, I think it's meant for us. Right? I think that's what the I think the practice is meant for all of us. Uh and I and I, I it's all the stuff that we've talked about during our other talks. You know, you practice yoga to relax the the body, you know, turn inwards, quiet the mind and reconnect the mind, the body and the breath. And I do think it's really good to remember that less is more. It's you know, it's good to be a C student in yoga. It's one of the few things in life where less effort has a bigger dividend. Um, mm-hmm. And it isn't just a practice of, you know, prachahara, uh, turning inwards, but dharana and dhyana, concentration meditation, is where you 
train the mind to stay in the present moment, um, you know, either tethering it to your sensations of the body or sensations of your breath. Um, but, you know, from a psychological standpoint, what this is all really about is disassociating, learning to disassociate from the thought stream. So disassociating your self, your sense of self from this kind of false construct of your ego. Um, and psychiatric research has shown that how much of the thought stream is dominated by narcissistic thoughts, which is how we neurotically check in to see how we're doing moment to moment. You know, what are people thinking about us? You know, am I doing okay? Did I do that right? What do I, what do I need to do next? Um, which is kind of insane when you think about it because our self-identity isn't even real to begin with. You know, it's just this construct. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a mental construct of who we are in the world, but it's not actually who we are. Mm-hmm. Um, and an enormous amount of our mental energy is spent trying to maintain this self that is really just a figment of our own imagination. Mm-hmm. So from that perspective, enlightenment is just a process of letting that illusion go. Okay. So just let go of your sense of self? Yeah. I mean, it sounds easy, but it obviously isn't easy. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, that's why it's a practice. So you shift you you know through the practice of uh, of either yoga or meditation or both. You start to shift your awareness um, away from the neurotic thought stream and towards just the sense of mind body breath awareness, uh, which brings us all the way back to the open minds of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, which are now the teachings of yoga. Yoga is to still the patterning of consciousness. Then pure awareness can abide by its very nature. Otherwise, awareness takes itself to be the patterns of consciousness. So, you know, it's a big idea um, that, you know, we are not the chatter of our minds. And that dovetails perfectly with this eightfold path, which is really a process of, you know, working towards letting go of the neurotic thought streams so that awareness can abide in its very nature. Which I really like, awareness abiding in its very nature, Mm -hmm. um, which is just being, you know, just allowing yourself to be, not trying Mm -hmm. to maintain some sense of self and just be open to life as it happens. Um, you know, and I I think this speaks to the fact that you really are not the sum of your thoughts or your emotions. They're just objects in your consciousness. Uh, so you, it's a practice of realizing that, really, that first of all, realizing that fact, and then shifting your awareness to your sensations of your body and your breath, and kind of holding them always with with equal weight. Uh, I mean, if, if thoughts come in while meditating, you just you recognize it as a thought, just like you would recognize a breath. But it's no longer who you are. Um, mm-hmm. And then you learn to just fall into this moment. Nothing to do, nowhere to go. Just be here and now, a, a calm, alert, egoless presence. And I, and I think maintaining that state is what we're talking about when we're talking about alignment. Okay. 
So just be, and that's it. Yeah, unfortunately, it's harder than it sounds. Uh, yeah. The mind is very persistent, right? <laughs> so that's mm-hmm. where the practice comes in, uh, constantly disassociating from the mind and falling back uh, into the self, whatever works for you. Um, you know, focused on the breath, focused on the sensations of the, bro- the body, or there's other methods of meditating. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, it can last, This, you know, if you can fall into the state of enlightenment, it can last for an hour, it can last for a few days, probably longer. Uh, and then I think the results can be really life-changing and profound. Um, you know, because you, once the this false self tr- really falls away, then the universe kind of fills the void. You know, it can be profound feelings of bliss and gratitude. Uh, you know, I experienced this bittersweet re- realization that uh, everything was impermanent. Um, you know, that each moment is unique and will only happen once. Uh, basically, it was a feeling that each moment was like a snowflake melting in my palm. Mm-hmm. And that each moment was precious and deserved my full attention. Mm-hmm. So, so you're saying that this feeling of enlightenment can last for like a day or a couple of days? Yeah, it can last for long. Yeah, I mean, I think I think what happens is if you can, you know, if you're a monk, I guess the Dalai Lama, you know, he practices and he just cultivates it, and that's his maybe his normal state of consciousness. I I, I don't know. Um, right. But I think for the rest of us who actually have like lives and families and jobs. Um, not that he doesn't have right. you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, uh, that's we have things we have traffic to do. <laughs> on the freeway, you know. Um, uh, you know, it, it, I think regular life can kind of create static that makes it hard to maintain. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess the Dalai Lama travels to big cities and stuff and probably maintains it. Uh, but I just think it's it's harder, you know, to the extent that you're your life is filled with noise. It's hard to quiet the chatter of the right. Stream. Right. Well, he has a lot of time to meditate. <laughs> People take care of things for him. <laughs> right, and he also probably does the practice. You know, so he and he does the practice every morning. Yeah. A lot. So, yeah. and and what you're talking about really is not meditating for a day or so, but that will. Once you you have a regular practice of meditating for however long, it can lead to this feeling yeah, of enlightenment. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's again. I think it's an act of surrender. Um, I think that it's not something you can effort your way into. Uh, you can't um, kind of force yourself to disappear. Uh, I think it's a matter mm-hmm. of just shedding it, shedding it. You know, and and just going deeper and deeper into whatever practice you're you're um, you're doing. Um, right. You know, there's been a lot of research about how savoring experience leads to happiness. Um, so I think from that angle, you could say that enlightenment is a state of perpetual savoring, you know, that by letting go of the the chatter of the mind, uh, you can experience each moment more fully. Um, mm-hmm. And again, I would say just don't focus on the result. You know, uh, it'll trip you up. Um, just shift, focus on shifting your awareness away from uh, the chatter of the mind to some practice that you're doing, 
and then just try to surrender ever more deeply into that experience until, you know, at some point there's no self left. Uh, I think I do think that that's the key to it is this uh, the egolessness of it, um, you know, allowing yourself to uh, finally shed whatever that false sense of identity is. Right. So, so how uh, how long do you meditate for? I mean, I have a daily practice. The the the, um, the heavy lifting of meditation is the first five minutes. You know, if you can mm-hmm. if you can get your mind to quiet for five minutes, uh, you can usually sit and meditate for an hour. Uh, so, you know, I have a you know I have a daily practice. I do a little bit of yoga and then I do a little bit of meditation, and then that just kind of mm-hmm. anchors me through the rest of the day. It, whole thing uh-huh. takes like 10, 15 minutes. It's not a big deal. And that's it. Yeah, wow. I, think, I think you don't have to do like, I mean, I'm, I'm, I think there are benefits for doing longer. I'm not saying don't do longer if you've got the time, but I, I don't think you have to do an hour meditation every day or twice a day. You know, a lot of people don't have mm-hmm. the time for it anyway. Um, but if you, you know, I do like six slow vinyasas and then I have a a few breathing practices and a few meditative practices and the whole thing, you know, 10, 15 minutes. And that can lead to this state of enlightenment, just doing that. Uh, yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's more just to keep me not keep me more rather than less sane as I go through my day. Uh, yeah, I think that if, if you really want to kind of set the stage – not having a time limit, I think, would help. Uh, you know, and if you're on a retreat where you have no other responsibilities, you have no kids to pick up, you don't have to go to work the next day. Um, you know, there's food that's been prepared for you. That all helps. Um, I, you know, more time is definitely better. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so because the, like I said earlier, the mind is really persistent. It's going to want to invade the space and reassert your ego self. It doesn't want to let it go. You know, it's it's almost like a virus or something, you know. Right, um, right. And, and so, the, you know, the more, the closer you get, the more kind of uh, strident it's going to be in trying to invade your space. And if you have any task waiting for you, it's going to be hard to not get pulled out. Um, mm-hmm. But if you have it, you know, if you have a, a full day free with no plans and you can fall deeply into meditative state and not worry about having to come out of it, uh, you're probably halfway home at that point. Yeah. I guess I guess I'm really curious. <laughs> I'm pushing this. When you felt this experience that felt like enlightenment to you, were you at a retreat? Yeah, I was at a retreat. Okay. Yeah, and the key for mm-hmm. me was this C student thing. I, I I'd been sharing a room with a guy I didn't know who was I thought was just working too hard. He was just, you know, treating yoga like a competitive sport. So I I asked one of the instructors, you know, whether that was the path or not and they said, No, 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 it's really good to be a C student And so I was like, All right, that's something I can work with. So I went to an an easy class and I found a dark corner of the room and I very quickly fell into this state where I actually really stopped listening to my mind while I was doing the physical practice. So I just let my body take over 
Mm-hmm. Um, so it was almost like spontaneous movement, like what are like a cat stretching in the sun, I guess, uh, something like right. that. Uh-huh. And um, and when I left that class, I was in this altered state of consciousness. Mm. Uh, and I've talked to other people there that have done you know done it through you know meditation or through efforting, you know that they were doing a really active practice and like holding bridge for twenty minutes or something. Um, yeah, I think there are different ways in, but I think that the related thing that I could see was this sense of surrendering into whatever it is, you know, letting go of self and surrendering, surrendering ever more deeply until, uh, the self is gone. Mm-hmm. And so having experienced that during this retreat where you didn't have to do, you know, you didn't have things that you had to do. Um, does, do you remember that feeling and does it bring you back into that feeling just from the memory of it when you do a five-minute meditation or go through the day and just take a breath and remember? Yeah, I pretty much remember it always. I mean, it, it, it changed okay. my resting state of consciousness so that now I'm a bit a little bit less neurotic, I guess. Hmm. <laughs> you know, like my normal okay. state of consciousness is, you know, has got a, there's like a different ground level almost. Uh, and then, yeah, I've gotten back wow. there. I mean, the first time was pretty profound because I was, it was at the beginning of a three day weekend and I just kind of maintained that heightened state for the three day weekend. Um, mm-hmm. So that everything I did was like the, uh, you know, it's like, oh my God, this is the best food I've ever eaten. Oh my God, this is the best conversation I've ever had. You know, uh, <laughs> this is the best yoga class I've ever. And because I just I was fully present for each experience, like you know, it, you know, maybe a little manic, uh, but uh-huh. you know, still awesome. Um, and then right. you know, I came back to normal life and you know, being a dad of kids and work and all the rest of it. You know, it. it you know, it faded, but the memory of it definitely changed my course in life. Uh, and, mm. and it also, I mean, first of all, it compelled me to want to teach. Um, but it also, you know, like I said, my um, I'm aware of when I'm not close to that state, if I'm too far away, and I don't let myself drift too far away. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, you know, just having that experience one time can actually affect the rest of the course of our life. Right, because now that feels normal rather than being a neurotic bowl of stress, which used to feel normal. Right, right. Okay, that's great. Um, That's that's exciting. (laughs) Because, you know, to know that because I think that there's that feeling like you have the experience and then it's kind of gone like a dream, right? You try to catch it and you you can't get it back. Yeah, you know, yeah, Uh, I think that that's why it's a practice. I think it's, I think you start to associate with this other sense of self. I mean, actually, this is not something I came up with. This is something that the yoga, you know, teachings actually point to, mm -hmm. you know, which is that there is this deeper, calmer, more blissful, wiser, more connected to the universe sense of self that's underneath the chatter of the mind. It's like a deep well underneath the choppy waves of consciousness. So that's what Mm -hmm. these teachings are pointing to. 
Uh, right. And then there's a, there's a there's a point, and and I think meditation also this idea of, oh, that's just a thought. I can let it go. You know, this disassociation from thought is disassociation from the choppy surface of the mind and into this deeper, wiser, and more blissful state of consciousness. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah. Wow. All right. So I hope that this has encouraged people to <laughs> to find a practice that works for them, whether meditating or yoga or whatever feels comfortable for them. So Yeah, me too. Yeah. Um so thank you so much, Steve, for coming on once again with a really interesting talk. And um, if people are interested in your Art of Happiness workshop, are you still teaching that? Yeah. I mean, I'm not, like I said, I'm not currently with the studio, but I'd be happy to, you know, teach in the Long Beach area or, uh, you know, travel to teach a workshop if, uh, you know, somebody wanted to get a group together for that. Uh, Mm -hmm. Or if someone just wants to email me and they have, you know, questions about, what we've been talking about or yoga in general. Um happy to, you know, obviously I'm passionate about this, so I'm happy to talk about it with anybody. Uh, yeah. so you can email me at uh, Kane Steve, K-A-N-E-S-T-E-V-E at M-E dot com. And, uh, yeah, it's been a pleasure uh, talking. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I was kind of afraid to tackle this topic <laughs> because it's, <laughs> um, it's just kind of like, uh, it almost seems presumptuous, you know. It's, yeah, exactly, <laughs> you know. Um, but it also felt, you know, like and it's important, and I think it's accessible to people. I don't think you need to be a, a monk to experience this, and I don't think you need to work particularly hard. If anything, I think working less hard is going to get you further down the path. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah, I think this is a really good topic because it kind of ties up everything that we've been talking about. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I was kind of alluding yeah. to some of this stuff without talking about it directly. Um, mm-hmm. so, uh, yeah, I, 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 I feel the same way. I think it's a nice kind of, yeah. uh, close to the group of talks that we've been doing. Yeah. Great. And thank you so much again. And, and we'll be in touch. I'm sure there'll be more things for us to talk about in the future. <laughs> All right. Well, best of luck with your book. Thank you. Thank you. No. And I'll right, let Mar- you know. All right. You take care. Have a good All evening. Right. You too. Right. Bye-bye. All right. So we're going to take a quick break, and we have a lot more to come, so don't go anywhere. We will be right back. Are you or a loved one a Medicare beneficiary? Help save you and Medicare money by stopping Medicare fraud. Fraud happens when Medicare is billed for services or supplies you never receive. There are three easy things you can do to fight fraud. Review your Medicare claims for accuracy, protect your personal information, and be on the lookout for suspicious activity. For more information or to report fraud, call Medicare at 1-800-MEDICARE or your local SHIP counselor at the Area Agency on Aging at 1-800-252-9240. Any guidance offered by Dr. Carpell is not intended to replace the advice of your own physician or mental health specialist. Neither Dr. Carpell, her sponsors, nor this station assumes responsibility for the misuse of any of the information given on this show. 
please visit us on the web at www.drmaracarpel.com. And we're back. If you're just joining us, this is Dr. Mara Carpell and your golden years right here on blogtalkradio.com and on drmaracarpell.com. And before I launch into the topic of kindness and assertiveness, just I just want to fill you in on some news. If you haven't been listening um, recently, I am now working with a publisher on my book. Um, I've signed with a publisher for my first book, and the working title of the book is The Passionate Life, Creating Vitality and Joy at Any Age. And the e-book will be available from Amazon this summer during the soft launch. And I will be posting that on my Facebook page, the Passionate Life by Dr. Mara Carpell, and on my website when it's available. Um, we'll also talk about it here on the radio program if you keep tuning in. Um, when you can uh, purchase copies of the ebook, which will be um, very affordable this summer. Um, I am told they will be available for 99 cents during the summer. And then in October, we will have the hard hard launch when the actual paper copies of the book at regular price will be available at your um, favorite online booksellers. And um, I'm really excited about this. I plan to do some... um, touring to do some book signing so I will also let you know about where you can come to have a book signing by me so um, and that will be around the country um, in a few different places so I will let you know about that so this is all very very exciting Um, also if you want to check out my blogs in Thrive Global and in Huffington Post they are online and on my website Um, I have not posted one recently because I've been caught up in getting final edits out for the book. So that has taken up most of my time, but I will have a new blog out very soon. Um, I have one in the works right now. Also, if you haven't gone to my website, if you go to the website, you'll see a pop-up window that comes up that offers you a free download of a guided meditation by me uh, for inner peace, joy, and vitality. Um, All you need to do is put in your email address and you will immediately get an email with the MP3 attached to it so you can listen to that, and that's completely free. If you do that, you'll be on my mailing list, so you'll get all of the latest news. And if you don't like being on my mailing list, you can opt out of it anytime that you want to. So, you know. It's worth it just to get the just to get the meditation. I'm not forcing anybody to be on my mailing list, but that will keep you updated about any new news. Okay, and that's it for today for news. Um, I will keep you updated on all of those things as time goes by. And so now I really want to talk before Kurt Weiss comes on the program. I want to talk about kindness and talk a little bit about assertiveness because kind of related and kindness really I think goes hand in hand nicely with Steve Kane's discussion of enlightenment because as he said the Dalai Lama's enlightenment can be seen by his compassion and when we are compassionate uh, 
we feel um, inspired to be kinder to people. Um, on the other hand, the research has shown that just by being kind to people, we increase our own compassion. And one can say that maybe we become a little bit more enlightened because we start appreciating people more um, when we increase our own compassion. So um, it's, it, it's circular. It goes in a cycle. So the kinder you are, the more compassionate you feel and the more compassionate you feel, the kinder you become. And I think that that all um, has an impact on how, you know, quote, unquote, enlightened, enlightened we are. Um, and in fact, one of the practices of yoga is compassion and compassionate um, practice. So that is one of the practices that um, that you can start right away. Um, random acts of kindness. Uh, people talk about it, but really, you know, a uh, very, very powerful thing. And a kindness doesn't have to be something huge. It doesn't have to be... Um, you know, something heroic. It doesn't have to be something expensive. Kindness is can be very simple. And so I looked up kindness in the online in the online dictionary. Kindness is the quality of being friendly, generous, and considerate. And it can be a kind act. So um, a good deed, a good turn, a favor, an act of assistance service, help, and aid. And Wikipedia defines kindness as a behavior marked by ethical characteristics, a pleasant disposition, and concern and consideration for others. It is known as a virtue and is recognized as a value in many cultures and religions. In book two of Rhetoric, Aristotle defines it as being helpfulness towards someone in need, not in return for anything, nor for the advantage of the helper himself, but for that of the person helped. And, um, you know, I've talked about kindness and generosity in the past and how profound um, the effect has been when I have witnessed kindness. Um, I, I think I talked about um, not too long ago about when I was in New York in February and um, I was at a local pizza place down the street from my mother and it had started snowing and an elderly gentleman was there with a bunch of packages. He had walked up the hill to go shopping on that street and then the snow was coming down really heavy and was making everything slippery. And he had asked for the phone number of a taxi company and the owner of the restaurant told him to, he gave him the number and the, the man called and and, and you know, asked for a taxi to come pick him up. And then the owner of the restaurant said, um, you know, cancel that taxi. It's going to cost you $10 just to go down the hill. My brother is going to drive you home. And that was it. The brother and he, the brother came out from behind the counter and said, come on, let's go. And they left. And everybody, there were several people there, um, customers, and everybody was smiling. It just had such a profound effect on all of us. And I, I said to the owner, that was really nice. And, and he said, well, you know, that could be me someday. 
and you know he didn't expect anything in return and um he didn't do it for the everybody there to feel good but we all did feel good and um you know i think that um we could use a lot more kindness in this world these days um it has such a strong impact on us and um you know these days there's a lot of meanness out there and i think that the act of kindness is so powerful it can counteract all of that um i looked up some more um websites there's a website that is about random acts of kindness and um the they put a date on there that november 13th of this year is world kindness day and although this is something that should be every day they invite everyone to especially on november 13th to do at least one random act of kindness. Now, if we all did a random act of kindness every day, I think we could we could change the world. I really believe we could change the world if everybody listening to this program made a point of doing at least one random act of kindness every day. Um, I was thinking about my trip this time to New York. You know, everybody thinks of New York as being such a mean place and rude and and yes there there is people are much more blunt in new york and some people are even rude in new york i think there are people who are rude everywhere but i think sometimes because of the style of new yorkers it can be more obvious when people are rude and there are many more people around so there are going to be more people around to be rude um but there there are also a lot of kind people just like there are a lot more people that those there are there's a lot more opportunity for kindness and i ran into that every time that i have visited new york from texas i have run into acts of kindness and these were really um kindness without expectation um i really felt that the people who were acting kind um did it because it just felt good to do it and that's enough of a reason um this this time uh i took my mom shopping and you know she's 89 years old so um you know she walks with a walker and she's very careful about where she's stepping so she's walking slower and we were crossing the street um at the shopping center and we were at the crosswalk and the cars on both sides stopped and you know i was you know asking my mom to keep on walking don't stop because you know i knew the cars were waiting and um one of the drivers opened his window and he he yelled out of the car take your time you you've earned it you've earned it there's no rush which i thought was very kind you normally in new york you think of people honking the horn and being in a hurry um at that same shopping center i took her to the store and i was about to open the door while i was trying to help her you know manage the the little bit the small steps into the store and somebody was walking along a woman was walking along and she came and opened the door for us and i assumed that she was coming into the store 
she, you know, she was being kind and opened the door. And as soon as we got into the store and the door, the door closed and she walked away and I was like, wow, she wasn't even coming into the store. She came over specifically to open the door. And that might not seem like a big deal, but it really, it, it had a very positive impact. Um, in the store, everybody was very kind and um, really just being polite and being, you know, going out of the way a little bit, slowing down their fast pace to make, you know, make way for a an elderly woman who is walking slowly. This this may these may not seem like big deals, but in the course of a day when you are trying to get through the day, through life, um doing the things that you need to do, if people are not doing that, if they're not helpful and and they are pushing and um rushing and uh, making nasty comments or just not being polite, it has a very negative effect. It adds to the stress of, you know, trying to get through the day with a walker. Um, while when people are helpful, even the smallest acts of kindness make a huge difference in ease and how you get through the day. And it makes you feel good that other people are caring enough to do that. And um, being kind to other people has a lot of positive side effects. Kindness is a natural antidepressant. It helps when we're kind to another person, it actually releases serotonin in our brain. And serotonin is that neurotransmitter that helps with learning, memory, sleep, health, digestion and our mood it it is um, the neurotransmitter the brain chemical that antidepressants um, attempt to mimic but of course the release of our own serotonin is much more powerful than any antidepressant medication so having kindness directed at us helps to release the serotonin but even more than that acting kind towards other people releases our own serotonin. And not only that, and I spoke about this last time I talked about kindness, witnessing kindness um, performed by another person to another person also has positive effects of releasing serotonin, that very um, important brain chemical that helps us to sleep and to feel happy. And... um, there was a study by Dr. Sonia Lyabemirsky, who is a professor at University of California, and she asked students to commit five random acts of kindness a week for six weeks, and they showed a 41.66% increase in happiness. So... Um, The Social Capital Community Benchmark Survey overseen by Harvard University researchers found those who volunteered time or money to help others were 42% more likely to describe themselves as happy. So, you know, um, 
random acts of kindness increase our own happiness, decrease depression, and give us a feeling of purpose. Now, in the couple of minutes I have left, I want to talk about how this relates to assertiveness. So I was flying to New York, and there was a gentleman sitting next to me on the plane who was the opposite of what I just described, and pretty much sprawled out across both of our seats to first to eat his pound of French fries before the plane took off. And I just kind of moved over, figured, you know, he'd be done by the time we took off and then he would move back into his own space. Um, But that didn't happen. He finished his French fries and then took out his laptop and had his legs spread really wide to have his laptop in between and his arms across, you know, on the armrest between us and never, ever once looked at me or acknowledged even that I was sitting next to him. And it had the effect of feeling really, um, like I, I don't even, it, it was a very negative effect on how I felt. Um, and once I got off the plane, I asked myself, why I never said anything to him. I mean, I never actually said anything to him. I tried to, you know, um, hint by putting my arm, you know, on one little corner of the armrest. Um, So he moved it for a second and then kind of moved it back. I never actually said anything. And I realized that it's our responsibility when somebody is not acting kind to be assertive. And I was as upset with myself as I was with that gentleman for not saying anything. Um, you know, I think my expect, our expectation very often is that other people are going to behave the way that we would behave in the same situation. And that's not always the case. And, um, you know, I had Dr. Dave Rico on the show a while back who talked about um, the the givens in life. And one given in life is that not everybody is going to be kind or even kind people are not always going to be kind. So to expect that other people are going to act the way that we think that we would act um, is just not logical. It's not rational. Sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. So the way that we get what we want and what we need is to ask for it. And assertiveness is not being aggressive. It's not being nasty. It's not starting a fight. It's being confident and firm and polite. Um, And it's not assuming that someone will automatically know what you need. It's telling them what you need in a very specific, clear, honest, and respectful way. So, for example, I could have said to that that man, um, "Excuse me, can I have part of the armrest?" Or um, I need, can I, can you move over just a little bit because you're you're taking up some of my space? And I think that that he might have reacted in a negative way, but that would have been his problem. Um, If I was respectful to him, then I know that I've done um, what I needed to do for myself and I don't, and I was kind about it. Um, 
And I actually, when I looked up assertiveness online, I actually found a website for children, for kids ages 6 to 12. This was meant for about assertiveness, sticking up for yourself and being assertive. And I think we all could use the lesson that these little children um, were given. And in the website for the kids, it says assertive people care about themselves and about others. They feel confident enough to take risks, make mistakes, and learn from them. They are people who will be kind and honest friends. You know that you can rely on them to keep their word. So being assertive is about letting others know how you feel and what you want. It's about letting people know your real thoughts and opinions and about being clear about what you want to do. So sometimes people confuse assertiveness with aggression, and aggression is more about like having a tantrum. When you're assertive, you still need to remember to listen well to what other people say. You have a responsibility to respect the rights of others. So assertiveness is sticking up for your own rights while not taking away the rights of other people. Um, Everyone has a right to feel safe, have opinions and to be able to express them, to ask for what they want, to make mistakes and have a chance to try again. Um, So, and what they suggest is someone is unkind to you. It doesn't matter how nice you are to others or how good you usually feel about yourself. You're going to come across people who are mean, nasty, and aggressive at times. Um, And you can't do anything about these people and how they behave, but you can do something about how you react. So letting somebody know that you don't like what they're doing or, or hey, can, can you give me a little bit more space here? Um, that's a right. And, I, you know, I thought about that and I thought about how I didn't stand up for my rights. And um, now in the future, I will. And I, and I think, and I, the, the man wasn't nasty, but he never did anything to acknowledge that someone was sitting next to him and that he was taking up half of that person's space. Um, and I think it probably, he probably would have moved over had I said something. So, Um, being kind doesn't mean that you can't be assertive when you feel that your own rights are being infringed upon, that it's okay to speak speak out and say something without being mean or nasty to another person. So um, I felt like I really wanted to add that to the kindness Um, discussion because not everybody is going to be kind. Not everybody is going to help you when you need it. Not everybody is going to hold the door um, like that lady did when we were going into the store. Not everybody is going to be patient when an elderly person is crossing the street. And doing that Doing those things, those kind things, is very beneficial for the person doing them, for the person receiving it, and for the people who see it. 
but not everybody's going to do it. And when people don't, um, it's okay to say, hey, can you please be a little kinder? Um, And I think if we all kept that in mind, we can create a much kinder world. So, all right. So on that note, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, Kurt Weiss is going to join us from Seattle, Washington, to talk about his new book, Stranded in the Jungle, Jerry Nolan's Wild Ride. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Any guidance offered by Dr. Carpell is not intended to replace the advice of your own physician or mental health specialist. Neither Dr. Carpell, her sponsors, nor this station assumes responsibility for the misuse of any of the information given on this show. If you're just joining us, this is Dr. Mara Carpell and your golden years right here on Blog Talk Radio and on drmarakarpell.com. And we were just listening to the Rockette 
with drummer Kurt Weiss, who went by the name of Louis King, King, sorry, Louis King in his punk rocker days of the 1980s. And Kurt is joining us on the phone from Seattle to talk about his new book, Stranded in the Jungle, Jerry Nolan's Wild Ride, a biography Hi, of the punk rocker. Hey, Kurt. How are you doing? I, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I like how you called me Lewis Kink. That was that was yeah, uh, know, that, made my, was that made my day. That made my day. Made my that's month. That's your new. That's your new. That's your new name. I'm always looking for a new name. I've been called that's worse, the ne- but that's okay. The next, the next phase of your life. <laughs> yeah, don't tell my daughter that. Okay. <laughs> so, Kurt, congratulations on your book. Thank you very much. I think the last time we spoke, I was, you know, still, I don't think I had a book deal even. I, I may have had an agent, but no book deal. But anyway, you know, I didn't even have an agent. That's right. So anyway, yes, it's been a while. It was, it was a hard slog. If I, I think if I had known how hard it was going to be when I started, I might not have done it. So naivety, uh, naivete has its payoff. Right. I know. I know what you mean. <laughs> I know yeah. what you mean. So... Wow. So your book has received rave reviews. I I looked it up and oh my goodness, everybody, all the rock magazines and, you know, book reviews, they're all raving about your book. That's so good. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear it because I put a lot of work into it. I mean, not not everybody likes it, but most of the reviews have been really, really good. And, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm honored. I'm, I'm humbled. I, I tried to do Jerry... Fairly and honorably, um, you know, he was a complicated character. There was, he was, in fact, one person I interviewed said he was kind of schizophrenic. You know, he had this mm-hmm. real sort of straight traditional side to him who didn't want to be outlandish or, and he was kind of a one woman guy. And then there was this other part to him that um, was an addict, you know, which is not really mm-hmm. the way you should be in a traditional life, but, he was a great drummer and, and I guess, and he was in these two bands, the, the New York dolls and um, Johnny Thunder's heartbreakers who were both really influential bands who really never had their due, but other people came and took lessons from them. I think I counted a dozen bands in the rock and roll hall of fame that owe some sort of debt to either of those bands. And I just thought he deserved to have his story told. Mhm. Mhm. Now you played in the Rockettes as a drummer, taking yes. his place, right? Yeah, he played with them all about seventy nine, eighty. There was a drummer just a little bit for about six months or so between us, who never really worked. And I knew the guys in the band, and they gave me a shot, and it just worked out. So then I played with them eighty one, eighty two. But I was a big fan of theirs when Jerry played with them, and I used to see him. Uh, when he was in that band. And I, I had seen Jerry in a few other bands. I saw him back Sid Vicious, and I saw this band he had called The Idols, and I probably saw him with Johnny Thunders, and I definitely definitely saw him on TV with the Dolls. But it wasn't until I saw him with the Rockettes that I realized I, I understood how great he was. Because people had been saying for a while, he's the best drummer in New York. And, and sometimes I think people are so ahead of, Head of the curve, you don't quite see it. And it took about a year for me to understand it. And also his recordings were so bad, or at least recorded badly. So it was kind of hard to tell what talent he had. 
But he really was, mm-hmm. and not only was he a great drummer, but he would lift the rest of the band up. He would improve them. Um, but he really was mm-hmm. the complete package. You know, um, he was he was a great musician, but he was also a, he could sing, he could arrange, um, he was a stylist. Um, so he had a lot going for him. He wasn't just the guy in the back keeping the beat. He really helped define every band he was in. So it was really uh-huh. such a pleasure. It was such a pleasure to watch him play. So what led you, well, first of all, how long did it take you to write this book? Well, you know, from <laughs> when I started in 2006 and I delivered wow. a manuscript, it was 10 years. Um, wow. It, it started out as an oral history, which is, you know, just like a, a quote from a person followed by a quote from a person and strung out to tell a story. Uh, probably the most famous punk rock oral history is called Please Kill Me. Um, and then mm-hmm. I think, um, uh, I'm trying to remember who, the, uh, Studs Terkel wrote a great oral history and George Plimpton wrote great oral history. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an accepted form. Um, uh-huh. So I was going to do a, an oral history on Jerry. And luckily I met an agent who was a fan of this band, The Replacements, who were kind of popular in the 80s. And because he knew about the replacements love of Johnny Thunders. He had an idea who Jerry Nolan was. So he decided he he wanted to represent me. And so we tried to sell the oral history and it couldn't sell it. And, you know, he said, you know, as far as I can see, your two choices are to either hang it up or write a narrative. And so I said, well, let me give it a shot. And I wrote a chapter and he helped edit it. And we put that in the proposal and we got a few, you know, a few offers. And we ended up with this company called Backbeat, who does a lot of music books. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they seem to be in the, in the middle of a series of drummer biographies. They did a Ringo biography about two years ago and Kenny Aronoff, the guy that played with John Mellencamp. And they got the guy, Artemis Pyle, who played with Leonard Skinner and just a whole bunch of drummer biographies. So I guess I'm one of their stable of drummer biographies. Uh, right. So, you know, so, it was a long so what led, walk. Yeah. Well, what led you to what led you to write this book in the first place? I I just thought he was an underappreciated character. I mean, you know, like I said, he was in those two great bands, the New York Dolls and and Johnny Thunder's Heartbreakers, and and there had been books on Johnny Thunder's and books on the Dolls and Arthur, the the bass player, his uh, posthumous. Memoir came out in 2005, and then the Dolls, uh, they reunited in 2004. And I just thought, you know, now's the time. There seems to be interest in them again. And, you know, the guy had been dead 23, actually 25 years, almost 24 years by the time I started. And I just said, you know, nobody's going to do this unless I do it. And so I just decided Mm -hmm. to do it. And it was really a labor of love. I never thought I'd get rich and I still have not gotten rich off of it. I'm there's still time, but um, (laughs) I I just wanted to do it. I I just, I I thought it was a story worth telling. I, I, I had, I knew a girlfriend of his, which is how I first went to see the rock cats with Jerry. And then I knew the band. And once I was in the band, I used to hear stories about him all the time. And I just thought, this guy is fascinating. And then the more I, and then, oh, then in 1991, about six months before he died, there was a big interview in the Village Voice, about a 10-page interview, and he had the front page. And, and it was just finally, he, it was almost like he got his due. 
Mm-hmm. And even as great as that article was, it, I just knew there was so much more that I knew about just from knowing friends of his. And, it, you know, then he died, and then, like, all interest in him seemed to go away again. So I just figured, oh, I'm going to do this. And, mm-hmm. You know, I, I knew so little about the literary business and world that I just figured, oh, I'll write it. And we'll figure out how to put it out later on. And, you know, right. it, all just fell in, it all just fell into place. Most professionals, they don't do it that way necessarily unless they're already an established writer. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, what the heck, it just worked out. It just worked out. <laughs> so so um, you've been going all around the country. I'm watching you on Facebook um, doing book signings and talking about the book. You've been everywhere. Are you still on uh, tour? Are you still doing not that? really? No, I I probably should push harder. I'm you know work thinking about my next book, but yeah, I did the Northeast sort of New York, Boston, New Jersey, D.C., Philadelphia, and I did the whole West Coast from San Diego, San Diego up north to uh, Seattle and like all the major cities in between. So I think I did eleven or twelve cities. Which was, mm-hmm. you know, it was it, wow, was, that's it was all over the map. It was all over the map. Mm-hmm. Um, I think D.C., I think two people came. Jackson, part, a, little, a section of like a suburb of Boston. I think just the only people that came were the two people that I brought with me. But then like uh-huh. Philadelphia was like, you know, 80 people or something. And that was great. And, you know, um, Seattle was about 30 people and LA was about 30 people. That was great. When you talk to Mm -hmm. a bunch of people who are really interested, I only had one heckler in Berkeley, but that's why I think they call it berserkly. So there's a reason (laughs) I guess it earned that name. Only one crazy heckler. Um, But it was great, you know, to spread the word about Jerry and and every town you'd meet somebody who'd say, you know, I know where his pink drum set is because it's his pink drum set. It's kind of like Rosebud, you know, from Uh, uh like, what what is this thing? Where is it? Whatever happened to it? You know, he would hop, and he had three of them, and he would hop them and sell them, and 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 you know, somebody would say, yeah, I knew there was a bass drum in a studio in New Jersey or something, or a rehearsal studio in Brooklyn has some of the tom toms or something. Um, right. So it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. I think one of one of the great things that I went to uh, Los Angeles. There was an LAMF reunion. LAMF was this great record he made with Johnny Thunders in 1977. It was kind of a, a flawed masterpiece. Um, but the one surviving member of the band got together with Glenn Matlock from the Sex Pistols and Glenn Burke from Blondie and Mike Ness from Social Distortion. And they played the whole record. And they played a few cities and I went there and I gave them all books and, and, and Glenn did a nice tweet about it. actually spoke about the book on stage, which was really nice, you know, so... It's gotten into some good hands, and um, you know, who knows? Maybe there'll be a movie. Yeah, I don't know. yeah that's great. That'd be great. Okay. So, you know, I I don't want to end the interview without you know talking just a couple of minutes about your musical history, which I would like to say started. I would like to say that I was right there at the beginning of your musical history. I guess you were. <laughs> I guess you were. <laughs> when we played in the high school band together. But your yeah. music went much further. So um, you played in a lot of bands. Well, yeah, I played in the Rockettes, eighty-one, eighty-two, and I played with this guy Tim Scott, who's now Tim Scott McConnell, and he had this song. I can't remember the name of it. Um, 
Bruce Springsteen covered it and did a high hopes. That was his song. I think I played on the demos. That was like 83 and four and 85 and six. I played with this band beat rodeo. And then I played with, um, geez, the house of usher, which was a lot of fun. I actually played in a band with, uh, Oh, I can't, I forget one of the, one of the, um, oh, one of the B-52s for a while and one of the Violent Femmes, like all these kind of quickie pickup bands in between. So I, I played mm-hmm. with a lot of people, but I think when I, when I turned 30, I just said, I, you know, I don't have the energy that I once had when I was 21. And I, I just, you know, I didn't want to be a struggling musician at 60. So I just yeah. started to, you know, study business and ended up in television. I've been working in television for about 25 years now. It just worked out. And, um, you know, but I, I you know, right. I always work behind the scenes. You know, the drummer's always at the back of the stage. And everybody just sees the guitarist and the lead singer. And right. in TV, I was always in the background, just kind of like doing the finances or the rights clearances or things like that. And I think one of the reasons I, I wanted to do the book is I wanted a project that was all mine. I mean, and I'm not mm-hmm. discounting the help of the editors and the publishers and they've been, and the agents. I mean, they've been very helpful. It wouldn't have happened or probably been as successful without them. But when it comes down to it, it's my name on the cover of that book. Yeah. yeah. So this is the first time. And I, and so, yeah, it's a little, I, I, I think I needed that. I wanted something that I could say this is mine. Yeah, so, and you yeah. did a great job. So well, congratulations again. <laughs> yeah, um, people out in the audience, feel free to buy one. It's available at your favorite so, and least favorite bookstores, I'm sure. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. So it's called Stranded in the Jungle. Yeah. And they can find it online at Amazon. And... Yeah, it's a- Amazon. Just the the Kindle version came out less than a month ago, so you can now read it on your little pad, pod. Scrod, whatever they call them now, mm-hmm. and, uh, or you can get uh-huh. a real physical book and even go to my website if you want to get autograph books. So what is your website? KurtWeiss.com. Just go to the, the link that says book. I know it's a tough thing to remember, but uh, you can do it, people. You can do it, folks. Uh, okay. I'm gonna... Great. I'm going to post that on the web post about this program. That would so... be great. Yeah. So thank you so much again. Thank you for my copy of the book. Um, You're very by welcome. The way. And thank you. And, it was great to be um, on a few years ago. You kickstarted it, and now here you are. You know, to, yeah. To bask in the laurels or the whatever. There you it. go. <laughs> and I'll have to have glory. you on again when you do your next project. Well, knock on wood. Yeah, another four yeah. years from now. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, you have a good evening. Good luck with this. And um, we're going to play one of your songs, River to River from House of Usher, as we go off the air this evening. All right. Great. Thank you so much. All right. You have a good evening. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, so we have come to the end of another show, and before Art kicks us off the air, let me let you know what we are, um, what we have in store for next week. Um, next Sunday, May the 6th, we'll be broadcasting our show live from Dripping Springs at the Red Arena, where we'll be talking to Jennifer Young, who is the founder of the Red Arena, which is an equine therapy Center for Children with Autism and with other 
um, disabilities. And um, this is a project of passion for Jennifer, and I think this is, you know, it's a really wonderful program, and I, we're going to do the whole show from out there, and I'm really excited to do it and looking forward to it. So tune in um, next week to hear about Red Arena. And if you want to hear tonight's program again and read the information from this show, get the links to the websites that we talked about on the program and other important information, go to my website, drmaracarpel.com. And all of that, along with the podcast, will be posted there later this evening. Um, You can also hear the program in as soon as five minutes from now by going directly to blog talk radio, B-L-O-G, talkradio.com slash your golden years. And this program was produced by Accomplice Entertainment, Postal Productions, and Psyched Up Productions and sponsored by neurologist and memory specialist, Dr. Ronald DeVere, and by Storyhouse. And I want to thank my guests, Steve Kane and Kurt Weiss. And, of course, thank you to Art. And thank you all for listening. Have a peaceful night and inspiring week. And remember, youth has no age. Good night, everyone. Any guidance offered by Dr. Carpell is not intended to replace the advice of your own physician or mental health specialist. Neither Dr. Carpell, her sponsors, nor this station assumes responsibility for the misuse of any of the information given on this show. 